place you comfortably. So, good morning, everyone. Day two of our session. The title of this talk is The Balance of Equanimity and Compassion in Relationships. When we reflect on it, when we talk about suffering and dissatisfaction or dukkha in the world, if if you reflect on it, the, the source of much of our suffering is to do with relationships. Um, families, couples, societies, divisions between people, nations, etc. Um, we don't have much of an argument with the natural world, really. Um, it's with each other as human beings that we have the difficulties. And um, a lot of those difficulties in relationships, um, particularly you see it in couples, but you can see it everywhere, really, become, becomes... When suffering occurs in relationships, it's because there's some kind of, often some kind of dualism which has occurred. And when we talk about dualistic thinking, it's not just a philosophical term, it's something that actually manifests in everyday life. For example, with couples, you often see a polarity developing where the relationship's dysfunctional, where one person is doing all the all the work and the fighting for togetherness and belonging, and the other person's doing all the fighting and the work for autonomy, you know, and they become split down the middle, and they're, they're fighting with one another over it. And that's a dualistic split, you know, and people take up positions and invest in their position, you know, and keep, keep fighting over it, and it doesn't resolve. But a non-dualistic way of understanding our relationships, is that autonomy and togetherness, autonomy and belonging, don't have to be in opposition to one another at all. They're not, Mm -hmm. really, when you look at it. But we create these polarities and we create this division and then that's what creates a lot lot of suffering and distress in relationships. Um, A few Sarzenkites ago, I gave a talk where I quoted Sharon Salzberg, who is a a very well-known Buddhist teacher in the US who's written books on loving kindness and similar topics. And um, her words seem to really resonate with people, so I'm going to repeat them again. They resonated with me. And they're, they're good little reminders about how we can have equanimity and compassion in relationships. So Sharon says, these are her statements, I care about your pain, but I cannot control it. I will care for you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. May I offer love, knowing I can't control the course of your life. I wish you happiness and peace, but I cannot make your choices for you. It's a good balance between equanimity and compassion. Let me just repeat them because sometimes you need to hear something twice before it goes in and stays with you. I care about your pain, but I cannot control it. I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. May I offer love, 
knowing I can't control the course of your life. I wish you happiness and peace, but cannot make your choices for you. Mm -hmm. And she goes on to say, I will work to alleviate suffering in the world, and I know I'm not in control of the unfolding of the universe. May I recognise my limits compassionately, just as I recognise the limits of others. May I remember compassion as I work to be undisturbed by the coming and going of events. And something similar to this is a, um, a line from the poet T.S. Eliot. There is only the trying, the rest is not our business. Or may I vary it slightly. There is only the practice, the rest is not our business. Right? So it's the practice of no gaining, just doing the practice, allowing the practice to unfold in its same way. And when you reflect on the, the um, great vows that we recite, the many beings, the number of I vow to end their suffering, etc., it's a variation on the same theme. Like the number of beings are endless, right? I, I can't actually save them all, but I'm going to do my best to do it, um, even though I can't control the outcome. Um, greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. They keep coming up all the time, you know. Even me, after 40 years of practising, you know, fear comes up, anger comes up, you know. It keeps coming up. I've, I vow to abandon them. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of, a kind of equanimity and compassion towards yourself. With all of those great vows, there is in there a balance of equanimity and compassion. So e equanimity is... Um, Equanimity is being one with your circumstances. Not a state of mind, not some kind of samadhi state that you lock into and you just carry it around everywhere you go. Um, that's a very uh, common misunderstanding people have, for instance, when they do session. You, do, you develop a very peaceful, focused samadhi state um, and it does go out into the world to some degree but it fades away after a week or two. Uh -huh. But that's not really the point of it. You can't hold on to it. It's the dissolving of the, the grasping and aversion that's happened during session is the long-term effect that has a long-term gradual effect, not just the, the, um, the biochemical change you've created in your brain over a week. Mm -hmm. So equanimity is about, is about being un, undisturbed um, in the comings and goings of the world um, and not, not being emotionally reactive. And compassion is bringing your heart towards suffering in the world, mm -hmm. which is different from pity. It's to, to empathically connect with the suffering to, of others with an intention of reducing it or, or um, taking it away, if that's at all possible. Um, by way of example, um, I'll distort the facts of this, but there's a, there's a, um, uh, a young woman in her 20s I've been working with for about two years now, I think, in, in counselling. And, um, and I, I really 
like her. I really like her. She felt like someone who's dedicated to Zen practice. She really wants to grow and, um, and, and do something differently to the way that she was brought up. But in the family that she was brought up, where her parents are divorced, she described her mother as being a really empathic person. You know, she could really feel everyone's pain and her own pain very well. Um, but she, she, she couldn't hold herself in that, like she would collapse, she'd be overwhelmed by it and collapse. And this young woman ended up having to look after her mother all the time rather than her mother looking after her. And um, so she had a big heart, lots of empathy, but no equanimity. Uh Her father, on the other hand, was this stern disciplinarian who could hold things together and was very stable, um, but was really, really harsh, you know, and and indifferent, you know, to other people's suffering. So these are the role models that she grew up with. Mm-hmm. And then she, at some stages she became more like a father and some like a mother. And her work is now trying to um, find her own being, which is neither of those, those extremes, and yet integrates the best of both of her parents. Mm-hmm. But, not, but not being like either of them. You know, it's not working. And in a, in a way... Her story, you know, having that kind of parenting relationship relates to all of us in many ways, in the ways the kind of very dualistic messages we get about in our education, in in public life and politics and everything, where everything is divided up into right and wrong, more and white and black and white. Um, Whereas there's another way where we we integrate, integrate these things. We integrate the heart... And we, and we integrate um, stability and wisdom and responsibility and things like that. A very simple way of remembering this practice where you integrate equanimity and compassion, something just to take away as a little mantra to remind yourself of. It's very simple. Um, I think it comes from um, uh, 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 Joan Halifax the teacher. That's where I first read it. Simple. Strong back, soft front. Mm -hmm. Strong back, soft front. Have a backbone. Do you know, feel your own stability, do you know, and and centredness in the world with an open heart. Mm -hmm. No opposition anywhere. No duality, no polarity. They just go together. But if we've just got the strong back, and, and, and no heart, then we're half cooked, you know, or the other way around. So when, when people, some people have, um, they're very empathic, like this young woman's mother. Um, they're very compassionate. They feel the suffering of other people and then they get overwhelmed by it. Sometimes they collapse or they go into burnout because they do too much. Sometimes they become over-responsible for other people's suffering, you know, and, and they're just distressed by it, you know, so they're not functioning very well. Whereas when some people, they naturally have equanimity, 
Um, rather than being overwhelmed by the suffering in the world, they're underwhelmed by the suffering in the world. They're, and they have a kind of a sense of indifference, detachment to it. Um, and they become under-responsible in comparison to the other one becoming over-responsible. So they're kind of the two extremes that we go into. And um, it's part of Dharma practice, not just in Zen, but through all, all Dharma teachings, that we need to find a balance between equanimity and compassion. And, of course, these two terms come from the teaching of um, the, the Brahma-Viharas, the Four Noble Abodes, that there is, um, we're, we're aspiring towards the awakened life is an expression of equanimity, joy, love and compassion. Mm -hmm. And if we weren't aspiring to that, what would be the point of doing all this, really? Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the flower, that's the fruit that, that evolves out of practice. And again, like T.S. Eliot said, you can do the practice, but you can't... The rest just happens. You can't make it happen. You know? um, but if you trust, if you have faith in the practice and you trust in the practice and you commit to it, by and large, that's, what, that's the transformation that happens to people who do this. Otherwise, what would be the point? Mm -hmm. Point's not to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Won't make you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what, that's what happens in the, in the spiritual quest. And we do talk about, we talk very much in Zen about no gain. Do you know that you... You're not doing this practice to gain something, and that's true. Um, you just keep coming. You just keep turning up to the present moment, whatever it is, including your emotions, in the present moment. And if you do that honestly and sincerely and consistently over a period of time, the, the self-centered dream starts to dissolve, and our our true self just naturally comes forward. We don't have to make it come forward. It's just there. It'll come forward. The flowers will start to, to grow. And it's very different from um, people pretending to be nice Buddhists or nice Christians where people are feeling like they've got to live up to a certain ideal, you know, to, to meet a, an image of themselves. Um, maybe that's the best some people can do. It's better than the, the opposite and it's on the path. But the more we do this practice, the more that sense of equanimity, joy, love and compassion is something that just sincerely comes out of our being. You know, it's not like we've got to try and perform it in some kind of way, you know, try and make out to other people how loving we are or how compassionate we are or how calm we are or how joyful we are. It's just naturally, it comes out of humility not out of trying. So Buddhism is often referred to... Oh, let, let me just, before I go on, the Four Noble Abodes come with what's called a near enemy, to clarify it for it. Something, something that looks like it, but it's not actually on the mark. And the near enemy of compassion is pity. 
Like compassion is to actually feel one with others. You know, pity is to look down on them. You know, from a superior position. Um, the near enemy to love is clean. You know, it's like sort of very, being very dependent and so on. You know, um, which is very different from the the peacefulness that actually comes from from deep love. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference and the near enemy of joy is mindless excitement. So, Buddhism is often referred to as the middle way. Um, And that doesn't mean that it's a compromise between two positions. It means it's an integration of two positions, just like there's a yin and a yang, you know, male and a female, um, and that's the Taoist way of symbol, you know, of looking at the integration of life. Buddhism as a middle way is an integration in simple terms of equanimity and compassion. And um, another way, I'm saying this facetiously, but another way of, of saying it is that it's non-binary. Mm-hmm. We, use, we usually use the word um, non-binary these days to referring to the diversity of sexuality. It's not just a, a binary male and female, but there's a whole lot of diverse um, uh, variations on that theme. And um, it occurred to me the other day when I was musing to myself that as I've grown o- older in my political views, um, I've become more non-binary. I'm not talking about my sexuality. I'm talking about my political views. And that before, when I was younger, I was much more progressive left-wing and anti-conservative views. And that shifted over the time where I'm neither. neither. I don't want to identify with a tribe. And I belong to that tribe or I belong to that tribe. Because it seems in our public life, we're just in a binary system. You're either this or you're that. And there's this fighting in between. And and the left, you know, um, emphasises compassion. And the right emphasises autonomy and responsibility. And we'll get this great division occurring. I think because we're divided inside of ourselves, you know, and... We live dualistic lives and then you multiply it by millions and we, we form these, these tribal divisions. There, there is another way. There is a middle way where we're not polarised between compassion and equanimity you know, or caring and individual responsibility, belonging, autonomy. They simply can come together. It's actually, the more you go into it, the more kind of delusional it is to create this separation. Mm-hmm. And our practice is to, is to um, integrate it. So it's that division in ourselves, and that division is in ourselves, it plays itself out in intimate relationships, in parenting, in families, in tribal kind of ways, nation-type ways, political kind of ways. And when we look at what is creating this division in us, in ourselves and in relationships, 
The two emotions that Joko emphasised drive human behaviour are fear and anger. They're very, they're very primary emotions that are connected to our survival system, our amygdala in particular, although it's not just in one area of our brain. But it, it, it's our basic, our basic survival instincts is based on this. And, uh, and when they become over-dominant and run our life, um, that's what creates the self-centred sort of in, sense of entitlement in life. Mm-hmm. And so um, our, our Zen practice, and particularly the practice that, that Joko developed um, and um, it's been handed down through me, although we, we all teach in our own different ways, but examining our own fear and anger is really essential to this practice. And it's through doing that, it's like just facing into it rather than facing away from it. Just being present to it as it comes up in everyday life or whatever, in a non-judgmental way, you're not judging yourself as angry or fearful, you're just being present to the experience of it. And as we do this over and over again, rather than being um, swept away by the emotions, but apply mindfulness to just being with them, all the stories start to drop away, all the division starts to drop away. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when we that's when we start to gradually break out of the prison, you know, that these emotions hold us in. Um, and again, um, we we don't have to um, deliberately try to be more loving or compassionate or have more equanimity. If we do the work of just being present with our fear and our anger, rather than blaming or exploding or whatever, then something emerges out of that practice. Thank you.